Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network, South Asian Studies. Today, we have G.S. Sahota with us to talk about his book, Late Colonial Sublime, Neo-Epics and the End of Romanticism. G.S. Sahota is Associate Professor of Literature at University of California, Santa Cruz, where he holds the Aurora Chair in Sikh and Punjab Studies. His first book, Late Colonial Sublime, Neo-Epics and the End of Romanticism, came out in 2018 from Northwestern University Press and it was awarded the Modern Language Initiative Grant of the Mellon Foundation. He is currently undertaking research toward two separate books, Transposed Minds, Indo-German Cultural Exchange, and the Critique of Identity, and The Name of Reason, Sikhism, Secularism, and the Future Philosophy. He is also pursuing a photography project on the Gurudwaras of California, composing fragmentary thought images and learning the Italian language. Thank you again so much for talking to us about your book. Um, let me begin with a very simple question, which is, uh, you know, about the journey that culminates in this book. What are the what are your own intellectual trajectories that you know end in this book, or how did this book take shape? Thank you, Sharonik. That's a really wonderful question to start with. I want to thank you for having me. Absolutely, really honored to be part of this uh, podcast. I don't get the assignment very often to read my own work and to contemplate and my own trajectory. And it's been a bit challenging, but I think um, I can maybe begin with just some comments. Um, Well, one thing I think you might notice in the book is that Lake Colonial Sublime is that there's probably something like a true love for languages yep. that comes through and the book was uh, supported by a small award from the um, Mellon Foundation. So a uh, collaborative grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the Modern Language Initiative. And that was in um, reflection of the intense uh, and deep immersion in various languages. So I've uh, really loved learning um, classical languages as well as modern languages, both European and and South Asian. Hindi and Urdu play a fairly prominent role in this, in this work. And uh, so I think that's one thing. So, you know, trips to India, trips to Germany, to other places, France and elsewhere, really, I think, uh, come across in this work. And I think also an abiding interest in what makes what language makes possible, that is the kind of knowledge that uh, language as a medium and other media have to offer. And so I was interested in form and questions of uh, of the dialectical interrelationship between something like historical experience and form 
Really? So that's something that you find, I think, in the book, too. There's a deep commitment to overcoming the legacies of imperialism as an outgrowth of capitalism, an intense effort to break free from the reifications of capitalism, imperialism, and racism, and to reconfigure and bring to light experiences that have been obscured by the institutional weight of imperialism. So those are some some uh, some um, some of the kinds of trajectories that culminated in this in this project. Right. Um, I'm also interested in something like fashioning a um, literary style that is adequate to something like literary historiography. And so the, the work is um, committed to something that the Germans call die strenge Stil, you know, the severe style, so a sense of a kind of irony that, um, that, that takes you from one end to the other of the entire book, and right. it culminates in this kind of ironic image of Rama and the TV Ramayana. Mm. There's that sort of strenge uh, Stil that I think you might sort of notice working its way all the way through. So there's just some things. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we are, when we, maybe towards the end of this interview, we are going to talk again of the book as a whole and kind of the effect it um, affords to the reader as a whole. But let's let's go on, let's move on to something very specific, which is your book begins with one particular text, which is Altaf Hussein Hali's Musaddas, The Ebb and Flow of Islam. And, uh, you know, you kind of use this book right at the very beginning as an entry point. Um, if someone came to this book cold, and I'm, you know, one of them, uh, how would you introduce it to them? And, you know, why this book? How does this book provide an entry into your work? It's also a really great question, a very challenging, makes you reflect a great deal. I would say that Lake Colonial Sublime begins with Holly's Musattas, because that introduces something like the historical milieu. Holly is a really fascinating figure. He is could be considered something like the subaltern in the classical Gramscian sense. Right. Someone who transmits, say, orders and messages from those who are kind of at the helm of a project of a certain type kind of hegemony to those, say, at the lower um, levels of the ship or the enterprise. So he's a bit of a conduit between high and low. He's someone who experienced the end of the old Mughal regime and becomes part of the Victorian colonial educational apparatus. And I think all the contradictions of this era seem to be kind of concentrated in his... uh, in his various dilemmas and the kinds of problems that he's, he's experiencing. So he's Holly, which is, you know, a man of the times, someone in the present, in the moment, there are all these various ways in which he can translate that, but that sense of being in that moment, um, I think uh, made it an interesting sort of starting point it also starts in medias res, right? And so you're just sort of as an epic, you know, generally begins, especially in the Western context, in medias res. Yeah, you get a sense of that starting point, and um, I return to him and the same kinds of problematics that I think 
he sort of uh, um, registers in Musaddas as well as in other works and the kind of prescient nature of some of his observations that, you know, the changes that are going to kind of flood all of India, it's not just going to be a little flood in, say, Doab, it's going to be a flood of, and that's, right. that's a very fascinating metaphor. And so the work kind of introduces something like this genre, which I call the neo-epic, and later late colonial sublime looks and um, investigates that's, you know, Michael Madhusudan that's the slang of Meganath, of Meganath Vadkavya from 1861. Right. Prasad, the daughter of Kama, or Kamayani from 1936. Iqbal's Javed Nama from 1932. And other works along the way, but those are the ones that are really concentrated on in the Indian context. And then the TV Ramayan, you know, from the late 80s, mm-hmm. which I guess still airs every now and then today. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, this, you know, it's it's kind of um, what really comes across, or something that I took away from the book a lot, which was, um, uh, I guess defamiliarize is not the word, but um, there are the, the, genre, the genre, the form of epic comes with certain kinds of built-in distances, right? And distances in time, distances in kind of... Um, you know, reception in some ways because reading an epic um, in 2022, let's say a reader is reading an epic in 2022, it would mean, you know, you you begin by kind of orienting yourself to a certain kind of form which is outside of what you think your everyday is. Um, and But this is a whole different kind of defamiliarization, which is, you know, in, that's happening in the, in the 1890s and early 1900s. Um, okay, so in the first section of your, and we, we have kind of the, they are, of course, they have, the relationship is one of inside and outside or time and genre. But at the same time, your book gives us two categories which are uh, new uh, to us or or two fundamentally kind of, um, you know, substantive categories. One of them is, the late colonial sublime, the other is the new epic. And in the first section of your book, you, uh, and I quote, unearth the key categories of the late colonial sublime, reification, romanticism, and sublime. Um, and uh, you use, you make use of the work, of the work of Walter Benjamin um, to frame this. Uh, so my question, you know, is how you use, or how does, for you, how does Benjamin's work stand out in his, you know, Frankfurt School context, because you say that you you read Benjamin as this kind of figure of late coloniality who is different from other people in the Frankfurt School. So how how does that work? And also, you know, how you make use of Benjamin or critical theory writ large, maybe in, mm-hmm. in this book. Again, very challenging question, but I think for the general reader, I can maybe give um, some sense of how Benjamin comes in and out of all the various chapters. And there's one chapter at the very middle of the book where he seems to sort of, you know, come into his own sort of is the predominant figure and a kind of anchor for many of the theoretical um, concepts that undergird the entire project. And Benjamin is um, fascinating on so many fronts, as everyone knows. 
but one can sort of sense that he had a uh, acute sensitivity regarding the deterioration of the notion of progress, the progress narrative that undergirds so much of imperial projects and and um, uh, forms of colonization in the modern period. And I think that is an interesting mediating point between something like um, the Frankfurt School's sort of distrust of some of these notions that are so um, normative within you know, European discourses of modernity. And um, so you have that on the one hand, and then something like a, a almost intuitive, visceral sense that things are kind of going awry despite this, this uh, overarching um, ideology, if you will, of, say, progress in the colonial context. So Holly and others seem to not really think that this is going all that well. And um, you get a sense that they imagine it to maybe be leading them adrift. Again, that kind of oceanic sort of terminology That's starts awesome. to enter into the picture of floods and feeling adrift in modernity, feeling at sea. And so that's just in, in very general terms what Benjamin had to offer. He was he himself experienced something like the edges of uh, of imperialism. His time in Ibiza made him reflect on colonization, and I found this in the in the letters that he wrote. And those were letters that that seemed to never really surface in any of the scholarship on Benjamin, and I found that very surprising. That very few really very few of the figures involved in studying the Frankfurt School or providing us with some kinds of analyses of Benjamin really took up the question of imperialism. And yet he's sort of caught between different empires. He's pushed out of various sorts of imperial um, formations and ends up on the very sort of margins. And I think that experience really sort of uh, gave him a certain kind of edge regarding how to think about things beyond just the West. So that's, I thought that was something that needed to be kind of emphasized a little bit more. And his way of proceeding, you know, with this idea of constellation, I found really fascinating. And I wanted to do a project that didn't really just simply have a kind of argument and, and marshaled various sorts of evidence just to back up that argument, ignoring things that were kind of at odds with that argument and sort of instrumentalizing material merely for... Um, something like a pre-given conclusion. So what I wanted to do was think about each of these things as kind of fragmentary and not really necessarily leading up to anything like a grandiose argument, having kind of logic of their own, jutting up against each other, overlapping in uncanny ways, and leaving you with a sense of maybe something like a logic that inheres regarding the entire era or the... Um, various media that I was interested in. And that would be something that would take hold regardless of any kind of overarching intention of the critic. So I wanted to kind of think of of these, uh, as of this constellational form yeah. as a kind of quasi-cubist underpinning where you can see things from different perspectives as if simultaneously. Right. And so that was something that I found very fruitful. So it, there's a kind of constellational, fragmentary structure that that uh, that works itself from beginning to end of late colonial sublime. 
There are other things to say about Benjamin. He has a very powerful notion of allegory. Yeah. And I thought that, you know, he, he's able to grasp all sorts of, and he's, a, he's attuned to all kinds of resonances in the allegorical form that are reach beyond just merely the aesthetic context. And really, and so there's a kind of way in which allegory magnetizes various sorts of historical um, debacles, dilemmas, contradictions, and I found that to be a very rich kind mm. of um, you know, set of cues to work with. Apart from that, I mean, I could go on regarding Benjamin for quite some time, but he's a great theorist who works against reification, yeah. which is one of the categories of the, of the work. And we can talk a little bit more about some of these um, overarching categories, but he's very much against the instrumental logic that was becoming normative across a whole variety of realms, including, you know, within the realms of theory. So some of the early writings that we find of his on language are, um, are in work in contrary wise against, say, Saussure, and even just this idea that language is just a medium or, you know, like a tool for communicating ideas or something much more there in, in language for Benjamin that I thought was worth thinking about. So kind of thrust against the logics of reification, of instrumental rationality, of a kind of, of a, of a, of a somewhat diminished um, notion of reason as such. And there are other ideas that you find, ideas regarding the sublime of aura, of lera, or the lesson. And um, in other words, he just seems to kind of grasp some of the questions of the dialectic of enlightenment of Adorno and Horkheimer, but within a much broader kind of circumference, within a much broader kind of experience of, of imperialism, colonization, and and his work seems to beg for a reappraisal of that entire argument of the dialectic enlightenment within a much broader kind of geography of colonialism, imperialism. And I think that's how you can break out of the Adornian or Chimerian framework, which is a little bit compressed and narrow, though they're trying to grasp things that are sort of beyond their capacities. It's, it would require a different kind of framework. And so what I try to do was sort of contextualize their ideas, which are complicated and fairly strewn all throughout this very strange work, Dialect of Enlightenment, to break it out of its shell and re reconfigure it within a context that would be more in keeping with what their aims may have been all along. But, um... No, yeah, but I, you know, this is. I, I think one of the one of the words that keep coming to my mind is the postmodern, and you know, and this is something um, that I don't understand, and I, I I don't think I'm alone in this not understanding postmodernism very well. Uh, but at the same time, you know, Benjamin's influence on um, on this time and this kind of and how Benjamin's kind of um, Benjamin would be taken up later, let's say in the in the in the 50, late forties, fifties, and to kind of 
try and um, explode uh, historical grand narratives and kind of usher in sometimes very forcefully and where it doesn't work um, in the postmodern. So I'm thinking, uh, you know, in the, do you, this might be a not really useful question, but I'm really kind of interested in, um, you know, and you can answer this very briefly in the, in the late colonial, do you see anything or do you sense anything, if not see, uh, that prefigures this, you know, these later attitudes towards towards um, the idea of historical progress, which comes up again in the, you know, later post-war, um, you know, milieus? It's a complicated question, the relationship between Benjamin and, say, postmodernism is a fraught one. I'm not sure if he would be completely, you know, against something like uh, grand narratives. He just thinks that these are the wrong ones. Right. These are not adequate to the situation. And um, something like a progress narrative that it goes hand in hand with the civilizing mission and the notion of development and a kind of normalization of uh, capitalist social relations seems to, I think, seems um, ill-conceived perhaps even ill-fated. And the idea, I think the idea of a dialectics of of the standstill, standstill dialectics is meant to sort of push back on that and sort of, there are these metaphors in his writings of, you know, history being a kind of like train going um, off the tracks or um, moving in directions that seem um, full of, foreboding and right. and uh, maybe even um, a sense of tragic tragedy and so putting on the brakes to that is I think what's fascinating yeah. but I don't think there's actually kind of some sort of all-out rejection of grand narratives it's it's a little bit more complicated it's about finding right. what the right narrative what, is what the right, right, narratives, right. What, yeah. yeah what the right sort of mode of presentation would be Right. And constellation, in some ways, is meant to kind of is meant to sort of you know break up something like you know, pre-given narratives or sort of narrative structures relating to time and history, collective experience, and to figure out how to reassemble them in ways that are perhaps more in keeping with their organic contradictoriness, with their with the potentials of overcoming something like the force of capitalism itself. I find right. that to be a really fascinating right. dimension of his work. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, you know, going back to the track that your book follows, um, you talk in one of the chapters in the first section, you talk about various forms and genres of romanticism, um, you know, that flourished in the languages of British India in the late colonial uh, period. And I, I think it's, it's one of the kind of, um, you know, the romanticisms that you talk about that flourish during times which are ostensibly of modernity. And I, I think, um, you know, these are, this can be kind of, some, has sometimes construed, been construed as kind of literary puzzles. Why are, you know, why talk about, um, what, you know, why are these romanticisms coming up? Um, so how do these forms and genres of romanticism help us, um, help you critique the collusion between, let's say, bigger romanticism and imperialism, as you say. 
It's also a really great question and makes you kind of ponder and read the book, <laughs> the sort of fine tooth, fine uh, tooth comb, you know, taking these little elements out and seeing how they all kind of are um, come together vis-a-vis -vis each other. I would say, you know, romanticism always had, and this is how I try to kind of frame it in a very broad kind of context, looking at say earlier works like the literary absolute, um, other works even from say the earliest moments of romanticism in the German context. Romanticism always had a certain kind of um, dis distrust or a certain type of suspicion, a certain um, um, will to distance itself from the norms of uh, bourgeois emerging bourgeois hegemony, and, um, and I think it takes on all kinds of different sorts of politics, colorations, different sorts of genres emerge. It becomes a really complicated kind of phenomenon. It's hard to reduce it down to anything much more than that, um, and maybe even sometimes just figuring out what is sort of the common denominator of all these forms of romanticism within the European context is fairly difficult. But once you sort of taking a kind of photographic metaphor, um, you know, zoom out mm. and see a bigger picture and see the larger sort of historical dynamics that, you know, take us into the early 20th century, into the Asian context, into the, into the politics of decolonization, in various parts of the world, you start seeing that romanticism has this sort of late moment where some of its, I think, most um, characteristic qualities come into relief. And those are the qualities that seem to show up in the Indian context and the Japanese context in various ways. And that's this deep distrust of the course of modern civilization, a, a kind of uh, disregard for its norms and what it sort of wants to impose universally it's it's um it's an, it starts to take shape as a kind of critique of western civilization as such because western civilization is thought to be almost indistinguishable from something like the force of capitalist imperialism and you know so under these in these late moments of romanticism some of its most enduring and most uh um characteristic qualities come to light. And I, and I thought that it's not just a paltry sort of imitation of what has already been kind of romanticism. Things have changed. Historical circumstances have changed. The, these circumstances give rise to different sorts of needs and place demands on intellectuals that you know previously hadn't been experienced before. And, and I thought that it's... Uh, it's an unwritten history, unwritten chapter of the history of romanticism that I kind of discovered. And I wanted to just make some inroads in that and show how this moment is, is, uh, is just as crucial as any other moment. It is just as original and it gives rise to interesting genres, different kinds of experiments. And it seems to... <laughs> provoke certain types of political aspirations, forms that we are still kind of 
experiencing today. Right. Um, okay. So, uh, you know, within this late colonial literary field of which, in which we see these romanticisms, the form of the neo-colonial epic emerges, and we have talked about it in connection with your introductory text, which is Altaf Hussein Hali's Musaddas. Um, the this kind of doesn't you know rolls out the mouth, but the neo-traditionalism of the neo-epic, uh, you argue, works against the grain of historical movements into modernity to a certain extent. Uh, you know, they kind of, um, do, I'm paraphrasing, but they, they kind of create a halt, uh, you know, creates this kind of pause uh, in, in those, you know, narratives of progressive, in those narratives of progression. Um, what can neo-epics and other neo-traditional literary genres, whatever they are, uh, then afford us in a world historical sense? What, what do they say about the history of the world? and how it progresses? Let's see, that's an interesting question, and I think maybe I didn't do full justice to your previous question regarding films and genres, so I may return to that as we move move forward as well. One thing that you get if you think about neo-epics, neo-traditionalism, and their sort of place within a kind of world history you get something like a genealogy of contemporary fascisms. Mm. And I think that's something that makes them really salient for our own times. So I've, I've done this um, by looking at Gramsci. Gramsci seemed to understand this in the context of, of uh, Tagore's visit to Mussolini's Italy. You get a sense of um, what's happening here. Let me just read a little bit of Gramsci. So I yeah, went back and found some of this. I think this might be interesting for people to um, you know, see kind of coming together. And so Tagore you know, was invited by Mussolini to um, Italy in this moment, 1930s, just when, um, just when Gramsci had been put in prison and Gramsci, you know, writes about the armed reaction um, that was taking, taking hold over Italy and Gramsci, who was imprisoned by Mussolini the very year Tagore was making his way through Italy and the rest of fascist Europe points out what likely attracted Tagore to Mussolini's politics, its capacity to do the work of neo-traditionalism. In 1925, Gramsci had noted how fascism in Italy aimed to disorganize working class advances and fit the elements back into, quote, the framework of traditional Italian ruling class policies, unquote. Fascism, he writes, replaces the tactic of agreements and compromises by the project of achieving an organic unity of all the bourgeoisie's forces in a single political organism under the control of a single center, unquote. And so you get a sense of this kind of uh, force field and these various elements from different parts of the world kind of colliding. And I think right there you get a some inkling as to how a much broader kind of genealogy of fascism can be construed that cuts across this 
metropolitan colonial divide and might actually give us some insights regarding what is happening in India today and perhaps even Russia, though I'm not an expert in that area of the world, but you get a sense of something like a neo-traditionalism emerging with Putin and the um, re-establishment um, of the Cossack kind of paramilitary forces, hearkening back to the days before the USSR and before the demise of the Russian Empire. So, you know, these are things that are with us, and we don't really have a very sophisticated language for talking about these sorts of tendencies in, the, in global terms. We always sort of think that fascism has these kinds of qualities that are very particular to, say, Western Europe, but um, we don't really have a language for talking about how it pertains or what kind of vocabulary is required and what kinds of genealogies are, are need to be done today to kind of think about this in much more global um, contexts. Mm. So, you know, this kind of uh, turn is called the conservative revolution. And I found it really fascinating that the analyses of anthropologists such as Thomas Blum Hansen and the analyses of figures like Krakauer almost coincide in terms of vocabulary, both Krakauer back in the 1930s experiencing the rise of fascism in Germany and Thomas Blum Hansen thinking about, you know, 1980s India grasp that there's something happening that's new and um, perhaps even revolutionary in certain ways, but it's a conservative revolution. It's a revolution that wants to forge something new, but um, against whatever may be troubling the older hierarchies, the tacit sorts of agreements, let's say, that hold communities together purportedly and, um, you know, kind of prevent sort of a real revolution from taking place. Right. Put in its stead something like a conservative revolution. And that re results in something really complicated. It's a newfangled kind of version of uh, conservative politics. Yeah. And these ideas regarding, you know, these sorts of tendencies within um, India, you know, that kind of modernity that is taking hold is somewhat anti-modern, you find reflected in other areas. So Wang Hui, the Chinese context, talks about it in very similar terms as um, a modernity that is anti-modern. And I found that to sort of go, coincide with something like an articulation of a neo-romanticism, new genre such as the neo-epic, and um, a sort of sense of of um, a critique of enlightenment. And maybe possibly if you were to sort of grasp all of this outside of the context of right-wing politics, there may be something worth redeeming there, which is something like a critique of a of a somewhat distorted form of reason that we've had and, you know, sort of brought down upon us under the bad auspices of, of uh, enlightenment and modernization of colonialism and imperialism, of essentially 
capitalist reification. And I find, and I found that to be interesting to sort of think, okay, there's maybe something not, we don't want to, of course, a lot of this is horrendous. It's, 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 uh, it's concrete politics are oftentimes horrifying, disturbing, and um, leave us with very little to kind of hold on to contrary wise, but maybe there's something that we could sort of grasp as possibly yeah. um, wor- worth working through, which would be to yeah. sort of rethink what a different form of reason might be. Yeah. Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, you know, like it's, it's definitely true for studies that are very much confined within the metropole as well. I mean, if you, if you read the high modernists and make a list of how many people had um, ties with fascism. It's a it's a long long list. Um, so it's it's not as if we can escape that in in any which way we turn. Um, but I, I do think that you know like this is um, it 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 gives us when I say it gives us pause and I I think it matches the argument that you make, which is it in the in the late colonial period this um, you know conservative revolution it gives us it gives pause both in the sense of a world historical sense but also in a in the sense of a kind of moment to reflect in scholarship and think as you kind of exhort us to do in this book to figure out what exactly those um, relationships are between fascistic reason and the parameters of the sublime uh, because if not, then a lot of things get conflated and then we end up in a bigger mess. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, I think that, you know, kind of encapsulates the sense of the book really well. Um, but my final, final question, and I can't let you go without asking this, which is what are you working on now? What are your current projects and what is the next thing that we can expect from you? Well, uh, it sounded kind of. I mean, I didn't mean the question to sound like uh, like a threatening or something, but it's. I'm <laughs> really excited to know what you're working on. I'm working on a second book project called "Transposed Minds in the German Cultural Exchange and a Critique of Identity," and that's something I've started working on. <laughs> Part of it may be coming out in an issue of Boundary Two in coming months. Mm-hmm and presented uh, on this project in various ways in different venues. And I'm also working on a project that takes me back into, you know, Indian philosophy, Indian thought, in a, you know, antiquity and earlier moments, early modernity, called The Name of Reason, Sikhism, Secularism, and a Future Philosophy, something like an idea of philosophy, not philology. I see. But um, so those are some projects that I have kind of underway. They kind of take me back into, you know, things that I'd started and sort of you know, left behind when I began Lake Colonial Sublime. And I've been also experimenting with a project that would be a sort of redemptive critique of Adorno called Maxima Fractura. A whole series of fragments, kind of in in the vein of minima moralia, which would think much more clearly and I think about 
uh, particularity of um, of of uh, individuality that it's nonconformist. I feel like Adorno kind of made some headway there, but didn't fully succeed in that project of of uh, breaking out of the kind of uh, conformist um, tendencies of of his time. It's a fairly controversial statement to make. And I've been doing some photography projects. I continue learning languages. I've been learning Italian. And that's taking me into different directions, especially mm-hmm. in a more invested research around Gramsci. So those are just some things. I keep myself fairly active and continue the whole Yeah, I mean, those are two huge projects. And like, you know, this is, and I'm really excited to read them whenever they come out in whatever form. Um, thank you. Thank, thank you so much for coming to New Books Network and talking to us about thank the you. Sublime. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very honored.